0: This is the Good Judge Men Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Padgett. And
0: I'm Tame Kell, and together we will be your hosts.
1: The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally, We have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else.
0: And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com.
1: Hey folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And
0: I'm Tane Kell.
1: And we are now in the episode five of How to Try a Case. We are through opening statements and we're ready to present evidence. And we're going to talk about the presentation of evidence on both sides. But you know the defense has no obligation to present any evidence or call any witnesses. So when we say parties, plural, etc., don't don't get apoplectic if we if we imply that a defendant can do or should do something, they don't have any obligation to do so. So we're now Or do
0: get apoplectic, because this is a podcast and we won't know. <laughs> that's
1: true. So uh the do you allow one of our really smart colleagues in a Metro County allows
0: Robert McBurney.
1: Wow. That's cold. Spoiler alert. Um, allows the jurors to submit written questions for witnesses.
0: Yeah. I don't do that. I have never done it, only because I'm fearful of it. But I will have to say, after seeing Judge McBurney conduct a major criminal trial, uh, mostly on television, uh, over uh, a few months ago and over a period of of several weeks, I watched how he did it, and I was kind of blown away. Most of what he does blows us away, yeah. but
1: so you thinking you're thinking about doing it or if somebody moved for it, you would entertain it now?
0: You know, I, I can say it was a hard no before I saw him do it. Now it's a, eh, I don't know about that, but I still would give it some consideration if somebody asked about it. I, I uh, at least I know what the framework would be for how to do it properly.
1: Folks, we're talking about the presentation of evidence, and this is basically how to try a case. So this could be about a 10-year mm, podcast. So we're not going to do that. We're going to touch some highlights, some, some touchstones, some things that might come up with some frequency. Uh, we're not going to tell you you should make sure the, the witness is sworn. That, that's fairly obvious. You just did. Um but let's talk about a couple things. We are going to do an entire episode on 404B evidence, hope, hopefully with the aforementioned Judge Robert McBurney. So we are going to skip a, an instruction on 404B here. Um, that's usually something that comes up with some frequency and can cause a lot of consternation among defense lawyers. And so let's, let's look a little bit about what do you do, for example, Tane? When you have a witness that refuses to answer a question, like like they just refuse to answer questions, and and they're saying I don't want to answer questions, and I'm they they do make some effort to raise a, a privilege. You know we have an entire paper on that in our outline. And do you do anything unique with that? Is there anything unique you handle that way?
0: Well, there are two different situations. Um, First of all, if it's part of a plea agreement that they are to testify truthfully uh, in the course of the subsequent proceedings, um, then that may be a wholly different issue, particularly if they've given some kind of allocution at the plea stage or something along those lines, then that might be problematic. But again, we could probably do a whole podcast episode on how to deal with that. Um, I... Frequently, we will simply tell them that if they're raising a privilege and it's inappropriate, like uh, frequently you'll have people say, Well, I assert my Fifth Amendment right on something that's not a Fifth Amendment issue. Um, I will simply say, Fifth Amendment does not apply here. You need to answer the question. If they continue to refuse, obviously everything that happens after that's probably going to happen outside the presence of the jury. And then we're going to have a little talk and we're going to explain what contempt is. And we're going to explain their obligations under the subpoena that they've gotten and that sort of thing to tell the truth and to, uh, to answer questions. So that's basically how I would handle it.
1: Folks be very careful with this and, and, and think real seriously about the jury being in the room or not. What Tane just said is exactly right. And and be careful that you, you think about what the jury is hearing the fact that you can raise a raise a privilege, there's even some case law that says if you know the witness has a privilege and is going to raise it, you should not call that person to the stand, and, y'all, and, and neither party should even comment on the existence of that person. So when the jury asked the question, where was Susie Q, who was the alleged eyewitness, and you know she asserted her privilege, and both parties know... The fact that the jury doesn't know is just going to have to be one of those things. Look at those law. Look at that law. Break out that, that memo and and see if that doesn't help you through that process. If you have, I guess you would call it a recalcitrant witness, maybe a—I don't know. Thank you. Nice work. I got a quarter. I a refusal witness or witness that refuses to answer. Now, and uh, don't
0: forget, some of those things are available on our website, goodjudgepod.com.
1: So on— OCGA 24-4-403, the 403 rule. A lot of people think that that is somewhere you're supposed to go. To be fair, you are supposed to go there on almost all evidence, if not all evidence. Well, I would say all evidence. But it is, and Tane, there's a pretty cool quote that about the exclusion of evidence and how often 403 should be used. What does it say?
0: It says the exclusion of evidence under OCGA Section 24-4-403 is an extraordinary remedy which should be used only sparingly.
1: The balance is supposed to be struck in the favor of admissibility. Now, there are times that you can't get around it, and that's fine. But that should be the exception and not the rule.
0: But the important part of this rule is what Wade said a moment ago, which is this is a rule that essentially applies at all times. You as the judge, when objections are made to the introduction of evidence, are supposed to do this balancing test all the way through the trial.
1: Now, I have a case involving the next issue that Tane and I discussed, thought to talk about, and I'm going to let him talk about it for just a little bit, just that way I'm not on record as to having a preconceived notion about it.
0: That's a good point. Um, So you cannot introduce evidence of a victim's intoxication unless that is coupled with evidence of how that intoxication affected the victim's behavior, and the reason for that is is pretty simple. That's a character issue potentially. If you start talking about intoxication without any other reason uh, for introducing that intoxication, if, however, the intoxication potentially had some effect on the witness's behavior or on their ability to perceive events that may have occurred or on something else that affects their testimony, then it may be appropriate to talk about the intoxication and the level of intoxication during the course of that uh, that witness's testimony. It may become fair game on cross-examination.
1: Thanks, Tane, for dealing with that. Let's talk about photos for a minute, and I'll take this. In a lot of murder cases, for example, when we deal with photos, the State wants to introduce a photograph of the victim during life. That picture should not include the victim's extended family. It should. It can be introduced by the family member. It should not include the family members in the photograph itself. When you get objections to autopsy photographs, one of the things you need to think about as the judge is pre-incision photographs versus post-incision photographs in the autopsy. And to what extent there is relevant evidence to be learned by what would otherwise be a gruesome
0: photograph or one that would be difficult to digest. And the same really applies or the same kind of question applies when the state wants to introduce... Stacks and stacks of crime scene photographs that tend to show exactly the same gigantic puddle of blood or gaping hole in the victim's body or whatever gruesome thing it is that the state wants to show at multiple angles from multiple uh, levels of you know, Zoom and all of those things. The question that I'm always asking myself internally, that little voice in my head is, does this photo add anything that the previous photograph didn't show? And if so, is it something that's relevant to either the prosecution or the defense of the case? I mean, it may show... A different angle of the wound, but is that relevant? And so, same with what you were saying about pre- and post-incision photographs from the autopsy.
1: One of the things that drives me insane is when a video or photograph is tendered and the other party objects that the person who took the photograph has not authenticated it. That's not a requirement of the law, never has been a requirement of the law, and it is it shows actually ignorance of the whole purpose of authentication. The op- the purpose of authentication is to say that the thing depicts what it purports to depict, not that the, the camera was operating correctly. And so anybody who operated a machine or who can say, I was there, the thing that is on video, I was there, and that's how it went down, that is sufficient. You don't have to call the owner of the convenience store that has the surveillance tape that looks across the street at the park where the shooting happened. You can absolutely call the people involved in the shooting. So the point being, when you get into photos, don't get lost in those objections. You you know the, the whole purpose of the thing.
0: Let me also make a really important point. Uh, I said a minute ago that you're doing Did this. Did you just at, say point? I, I started to. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Uh, it, one of the things that, uh, that you need to understand is that analysis that I was just talking about, about what does this photograph add and all of that, those may be questions that you actually need to ask. They may be questions that you actually need to ask on the record, but they're probably not questions you need to ask on the record in front of the jury. So if the state seeks to, you know, introduce 200 photographs of the victim's body and the defense objects that their cumulative photographs contained, you may have to go through all 200, but you need to do that outside the presence of the jury.
1: Absolutely. Now, we are going to do an entire podcast on the rape shield statute, one of our evidence essentials. We've already got it written and ready to go. Let's talk about a mistrial. Now, if you, if you have an, uh, an objection or a motion for a mistrial during the trial concerning evidence, now, we're not talking about a hung jury mistrial. That's going to be a different subject for a later episode. But if you have something that came up and the party moves for a mistrial, the one thing that I would tell you is go slow. Amen. <laughs> the only way, if you grant a mistrial and Jeopardy is already attached, which we've already clarified, the, the thing that makes Jeopardy attached in the jury trial is? Uh, swearing in the jury. Correct. So now that we have sworn in the jury and something happens that you think deserves a mistrial, one mm-hmm. way or the other, the only way that the defendant can be retried is if you find that it was caused by manifest necessity not manifest destiny, but (laughs) manifest necessity. You can grant a mistrial even over a defendant's objection when taking all the circumstances into consideration, there is a manifest necessity for doing so. So make sure that you go slow here and you make the record and you say how it can't be fixed. And there's really no way for you to unring that bell.
0: So, if something happens at trial, Wade, and someone says, Objection, Your Honor, uh, you know, that evidence is improper uh, evidence under, you know, Section whatever, I move for mistrial. What do you do immediately, Wade? Well, the
1: first thing that we're going to do is we're not going to discuss that in front of the presence of the jury.
0: Amen. (laughs) And to the extent possible, if you anticipate that that's what's about to come, I send the jury out before the word mistrial is even uttered by the the counsel on either side because— Jurors aren't stupid. They watch a lot of TV. They know what a mistrial means. They, they think, oh, good, we're done. <laughs> and so you want to, first of all, you know, not, not even have that thought in their head that something may have happened that could end this trial.
1: And, and because sometimes whatever happened was not so dramatic as to even kind of necessitate a mistrial, but that implication causes a problem with the jury. So now the state has rested, the defendant has moved for a directed verdict of acquittal, and let's assume that that was denied. So now we are to the defense's opportunity to present their case. Of course, all that happened outside the presence of the jury. And so do you ask the defendant whether he wants to testify or not?
0: Absolutely. I do, too. Well, I go through a series of questions with them, and uh, I think we've included those in the outline. Um, but I the basic way that I handle that is this state rests. I say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, at this point in time, the state has finished its presentation of the initial evidence in the case. Uh, that doesn't mean that the trial's finished, as I told you in the preliminary statement, but I do need for you to step to the jury room for just a minute so that we can take care of a couple of matters outside your presence. They go to the jury room, and I say... Mr. Defendant, you have certain rights with respect to whether you testify or not, and I need to go over those with you on the record. I know you've already discussed this with your attorney, but I'm going to ask you some questions, and so please listen carefully and response to those questions. And then I go through this series of questions. And the last question that we always ask is, um, do you or do you wish to testify or do you not wish to testify? sometimes what I will say is I'll finish all the other questions, telling him what his rights are and asking whether he understands them or she. And then I will say, we're about to go to lunch. (laughs) You don't have to make this determination right now. I'm going to ask you this final question after lunch. And the question is going to be, do you want to testify or do you not want to testify? You may have during the entire lunch break, or maybe it's overnight or whatever it is to discuss this further with your attorney. And then in the morning, I'm going to ask you that question. Or maybe it's a 15-minute break. Or or I may ask, before you answer this question, do you need a minute to discuss this with your lawyer?
1: You know, one of your colleagues on the Cobb bench tried a fairly popularized case involving a, a child that died in a car down in Brunswick. And mm-hmm. I got to hear certain snippets of that audio in another podcast, frankly. Mm-hmm. And in that podcast, I heard her ask that question Do you need any additional time to talk to your lawyer about this? And I thought that's a really smart question, right Mm -hmm.
0: there. I ask that in almost every. I try to ask it in every case. If I just forget, I might. But uh, you know, and one of the things I'll throw out here, as judges, we are always concerned about time, and we're always concerned about how long the jury's been in the jury room and those sorts of things. Those are always secondary considerations. We just need to be aware of that. That you know, as Wade said a minute a minute ago on a mistrial, go slow. You know, it's important. It may mean the difference in the case at some point in time. Just remember, those are always secondary considerations. They're important, but they're secondary.
1: Absolutely. And you know, our we could be talking about these issues for hours and hours and hours. For example. Our outline includes what happens when somebody violates a rule of sequestration. Are they barred from testifying? Well, the answer is no, but the reasons why are in there. Do you pretty liberally allow people to reopen their case if they forget something?
0: I do. I mean, I've tried enough cases over the years to know that despite the fact that, you know, you should be incredibly prepared to try your case and get everything in, You know, I've forgotten something. I've asked the trial court to let me reopen the evidence to, you know, put in some issue of identification or something like that. And I'm pretty liberal about that because the reality of it is we're not playing gotcha here uh, unless it's something that significantly affects someone's right. I'm probably going to give the defense or the state the opportunity to reopen Unless we've gone so far down the trail that reopening the evidence at that point is unfair. ludicrous and unfair, yeah. Folks, one of the other things that I think is important to note, and it's a it's a skill that I've had to develop as a judge, is um, during the trial of the case, beginning at voir dire and going all the way through the end of the case, take good notes. Um, it, it's amazing how invaluable those become in things like motions for new trial, which may come up Considerably later, uh, but for other things that may pop up in the future too. And so I try to take really good notes. I handwrite my notes just because I don't type very quickly. But one of the things that I've started doing over the years is I take those handwritten notes, and as soon as trial is over, I scan them into uh, the computer, and then I make an electronic file of them arranged by the name and case number of each case. And if it's trial notes, it goes under a, th- a thing that says trial notes. And um, I I essentially keep them forever after that.
1: Folks, some of you know who have been through NJO that I take all my notes on an iPad. I actually handwrite it on an iPad and save it to a file so that hopefully I can save the scanning part to each his own. What The point of the exercise is you're going to probably need to remember some detail about this trial that is not going to immediately come back to you six months from now. This is going to conclude section five. I will tell you that we have abbreviated this for the purposes of podcast. You know that we could talk about this for hours and maybe even days. So please check out our trial outline. We're going to put it online where? Goodjudgepod.com. Folks, thank you for listening. This is Wade Padgett. And Tane Kell. And thank you for listening to subsection five of how to try a criminal case. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment podcast.
0: This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr.
1: Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this.
0: And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness.
1: Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for Superior Court Judges across Georgia.
0: And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these
1: are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name.
0: Or anyone else for that matter.
1: Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com
0: if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints.
1: But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com.
0: And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening.
1: Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up?
0: No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to The Good Judge Men podcast.